If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please search for my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, where I review Ray's books and films. And why not check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, where we explore science fiction from all angles. Find Science Fiction 101 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello and welcome to another Bradbury 100. Today I'm going to embark on a new mission which is a chronological journey through Ray's entire body of fiction. Now, I've no idea how many episodes of the podcast this is going to take up, and I'm not going to devote every episode of the podcast to it. I'll drop these special chronological ones in whenever I see fit. Sometimes I will go through uh, a number of stories in a batch, as in this episode where I'm going to cover three stories, and other times I may devote an entire episode to a single story. Ray Bradbury's first published fiction appeared in 1938, when he was 17 years old, and for about three years he wrote just as an amateur, sometimes publishing stories in his own fanzine, which was called Futuria of Fantasia, and sometimes submitting to other fanzines. In 1938, he had three pieces published. The following year, 1939, he had five pieces published. And the following year, nine pieces. And then in 1941, he made a big breakthrough with his first professional sale. And that was with a short story that was co-authored with a friend of his, Henry Hasse. So what I'll be doing in these chronological episodes is going through each story one by one, giving a quick summary and then saying something about the importance or lack of importance of each piece. Before we begin the journey, though, a few words about sources of information. In general terms, I'm guided by the bibliography given in the book Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction, which is by Jonathan Eller and William Tuponce. It's a scholarly study of Ray's work, and you'll have heard me mention it before on the podcast. It is a very accessible book, and highly recommended for any fan who is particularly curious about Ray's creative processes or even the technical processes of how he assembled his books from short stories. And at the back of the book, there's a whole series of appendices, and I love an appendix. One of those appendices is a chronological listing of every one of Bradbury's publications, or at least up to and including the publication date of the book itself, uh, which came out in 2004. Of course, Ray lived on for a number of years after that book was published and continued publishing stories, so there are some stories that simply aren't listed in the life of fiction, but it's a very small number compared to the hundreds of stories which are listed. On my own website, bradburymedia.co.uk, I have a thing called the Short Story Finder, which you may have seen, although I find many people have never discovered it. 
So if you go to the website and click on Ray Bradbury Books from the home page, you'll be offered the short story finder. Click on that and that then takes you to a listing, an alphabetical listing of all of Ray's short fiction. And in the table there, I give details of where that particular piece of short fiction was first published and where you can find it today. And also in that table, I use what I call the Ella reference. And what I'm doing there is with the permission of Jonathan Ella, I'm taking his numbering system from Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction, and putting it into this convenient table. And I have actually extended the Ella references beyond the publication date of Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction, because John Ella very kindly shared with me his unpublished extension of that chronological story listing. That said, there are still some bugs, some typos. So if you ever spot anything that's missing or incorrect, do let me know and I will make corrections. Now, there are some other sources that I'm using for this chronological run through of Bradbury stories. One of them is a fantastic website called fanac.org, F-A-N-A-C dot org, which is a website which aims to catalogue the history of science fiction fandom. And one of the most amazing sections of that website is the fanzine collection. They've been trying to systematically collect historic issues of fanzines. Now, fanzines, by their very nature, are amateur publications. They're magazines that often had a very small print run in the first place, and sometimes a very short lifespan, and often they got lost and thrown away. But fortunately, science fiction fans, being science fiction fans, the word comes from fanatic, after all, tend to collect these things and also to want to share them. So on fanac.org, you will find lots of fascinating old fanzines, usually beautifully scanned or photographed. And finally, my other source of helpful information in putting together this chronological series, particularly for the early years of Bradbury's career, is a book which came out about three years ago called The Earliest Bradbury. It not only collects some of these earliest writings and gives you facsimile pages from the fanzines, uh, and some of the early fanzine artworks that Ray created, by the way, but the book also contains essays and commentaries and notes and explanations of the history of everything that's in there. So anyone who is really fanatical about Bradbury's early career or prehistory needs to get hold of the earliest Bradbury. Unfortunately, the physical book is quite an expensive thing. I, it may be even out of print by now, I don't know. The last time I looked, it was uh, on sale for 125 US dollars quite a lot for a book. But there is also a Kindle version, which costs less than $20. So if you're fanatical about your early Bradbury, it's well worth getting. So let's get started on this chronological run through of Bradbury's fiction. And starting, of course, in the year 1938, the year that the young Ray Bradbury first got his work into print, or at least first got his short fiction into print. He had written pieces in other forms before this, but all we're really interested in here is the fiction. 
So we're going to start with the first published piece of fiction by Ray Bradbury, and it's called Holobocken's Dilemma. Now, Ray never included this in any of his books, and, well, if you read it, you'll see why. It is literally a piece of very short amateur fiction. It first appeared in a fanzine called Imagination in January of 1938, and so, as I say, Ray was only 17 when this was published, and it was possibly only seen by maybe a couple of hundred people at the time, the people who subscribed to that particular fanzine. It did turn up in an anthology in 1974, a book edited by Sam Moskowitz uh, called Horrors Unseen. But when Ray wrote it back in 38, little did he know that he was just about to embark on an astonishing career as a writer. And little did readers know when they were reading Holobocken's Dilemma that it was actually the first of a series. <laughs> because later that same year, Ray published a sequel, another Holobocken story. Now, both of these Holobocken pieces are humorous stories, and I don't think either of them really gives any indication of the talent that Bradbury would later develop. But Holobocken's Dilemma, let me give you the first paragraph of the story. It does plunge us into a dramatic situation straight away. It goes like this. Holobocken faced a crisis. He could tell what would happen in the future. He could see when he would die, and it was very distressing, as you well may imagine. Every branch of his life lay before him. He knew he would die the next day. He saw himself being blown to bits by a tremendous explosion. So, there you go. All that in the first paragraph of a story. And what happens in the story is that this Holobocken character wakes up and he knows that there are thousands of different ways that his future can pan out, but he also knows that each one is going to end in his death. So, for example, he leaves his apartment, gets into an elevator, and of course he foresees that the cables of the elevator are going to snap. So he manages not to get in, and he's able to avert his own death, uh, although other people in the elevator plunge to their death. Then he gets held at gunpoint, and he's able to see a kind of a phantom version of himself lying on the floor in a pool of blood. So every step of the way, he's able to project what the future is going to be, and then somehow avoid that future. It's as if he has uh, the ability to kind of step back through time and prevent things happening. In the end, he decides, well, the safest thing for me to do is never to leave my hotel room. He thinks he'll be perfectly safe if he stays where he is. But then he begins to wonder about this explosion that he's had premonitions of, and it suddenly turns out that he blows up then and there, along with the hotel and most of Chicago, I think. As it says in the story, a tremendous amount of energy had been generated by Holobocken when standing stationary in time. So the, the mere act of holding himself locked in time, paused if you like, is what brings about his own death. And so the story ends with the line, Holobocken had solved his own dilemma, the dilemma of which way to die. <laughs> it's an interesting premise, dealing with 
sort of time travel-ish. It's a very hand-wavy kind of science fiction, which I suppose Bradbury would become associated with later in his career, because he was never a hard science fiction writer who applied the known laws of physics or the the factual laws of rocketry or, or whatever. He was always a very soft user of scientific ideas and arguably was better at writing fantasy than strict science fiction. Later that same year, 1938, Ray published two other pieces. The third one is the sequel to Hollabocken's Dilemma, and I'll come to that in a moment. But in between the two Hollabocken stories, the Los Angeles High School Blue and White Daily, school newspaper basically, published a piece of his called The Death of Mr McCarthy. Now this is an extremely rare piece of Bradbury. It wasn't credited to him, it's just an anonymous piece in this high school newspaper, but it was attributed to Ray in 1995 by Don Albright, who is Ray's official bibliographer. The Death of Mr McCarthy has never appeared in any of Ray's books. It's not been anthologised. It's not even in that book that I mentioned earlier, The Earliest Bradbury. It's not in the collected stories of Ray Bradbury, the critical edition. I'm sorry to say that I've never been able to lay hands on a copy of The Death of Mr McCarthy, and as far as I know, it's a lost story. If you have a copy, please, please step forward, because you have something extremely valuable. Maybe not in monetary terms, but uh, in terms of interest and gratitude from Bradbury fans the world over. So is there anyone listening to this podcast who works for Los Angeles High School? Anyone who has access to some hidden archive of the old newspaper? Go looking for the Blue and White Daily. It's the only place that this story has ever appeared. So that's the Blue and White Daily, Los Angeles High School, 21st of April, 1938. If you can find it, let me know. So then we come back to Hollabocken. Ray's third published story of 1938, the sequel to Hollabocken's Dilemma, uh, which had ended with Hollabocken getting blown up, so a sequel is unlikely, to say the least, but hey-ho, Hollabocken does come back. The sequel was published in a fanzine called Micros in November 1938, and again, it's never appeared in any of Ray's own books. It hasn't been professionally anthologised. It does appear in the collected stories of Ray Bradbury, the critical edition, in Appendix A2, if you're interested. And it does also appear in The Earliest Bradbury. And Hollabocken Comes Back is subtitled The Voyage of the Neuralgia. I have no idea what he thinks that means. Uh, Again, I'll give you the first paragraph. Hurtling through the stratosphere somewhere, a tiny piece of matter bobbled up and down just this side of the heaviside layer where the rockets turn to the right and take the air lane to Jupiter past the array of billboards hanging by skyhooks on the clouds. This piece of matter was a bit of brain from Hollabocken. And then in brackets, Ray puts a note saying, see Hollabocken's dilemma, imagination 
issue three. And then the paragraph continues. Holobokken, you remember, was blown up in space when he tried to stand still in time and a warp formed around him. He is now starring in a new Disney yarn, Snow White and the Seven Warps. Okay, so this is Ray doing the comedy stuff again. What he, what he thinks is comedy. But how does he bring Holobokken back to life and what does he do with him? Well, Holobokken was blown up and his particles scattered through space, along with uh, much of Chicago, apparently, uh, where he happened to be at the time of the explosion. And then Holobokken, or what's left of him, receives thought waves from Earth. And these thought waves, it says in the story, were sent to him by Bradbury. That's what it says. Thought waves sent from Earth by Bradbury. And Bradbury's pleading for him to come back and clear the family name. So Holobokken, or at least the, the particles that make him up, plummet to Earth. They land initially in Baghdad. Then the reassembled Holobokken heads off to Paris, then Moscow, then Ethiopia, then Japan, then Alcatraz. And all of these places, by the way, are just excuses for Ray to give a little joke. But eventually, Holobokken finds his way to Bradbury, who it says was working tediously on a new novel. And in fact, Bradbury is with another author, who the story calls Hank Cutner. Now, Hank Cutner, Henry Cutner, was Ray's friend, a writer friend. So what Ray's done here is mashed the two names together, Hank and Cutner, to make Hank Cutner. And if I understand the story correctly, what Holobokken does is he travels all over the US, gathering up all the people who had criticised the original Holobokken story, and then he throws them into the Pacific Ocean. So I think it's fair to say that Holobokken Comes Back is very much a piece of amateur fiction. It's self-indulgent. It's written really as an in-joke for his own friends in the science fiction field. And it doesn't really even have a science fiction premise. So to be honest, based on what Ray published in 1938, what we've got left to look at, the two Holobokken stories, it is really hard to see how the world-class author that we know and love could possibly have emerged. But emerge he did. So that covers the three stories from 1938, Ray's first year in print. Three stories published in amateur magazines, and one of which is lost, as far as we know. And what I think is most important about these fanzine appearances is that they show the young Ray Bradbury engaging with his peers, with other people in the science fiction community. It's often been said that one of the unique things about the science fiction community is how connected it was. In an era when there was no internet, what science fiction fans did was publish these fanzines, which they shared with each other. They built up these huge networks. And the professional magazines, the amazing stories, the astounding stories, the startling stories, these professional magazines developed in parallel with the fanzines and developed a fan culture around science fiction, which continues to this day. 
But nowadays, what you see is not so much of the fanzines, although they do still exist, but what you see more of is podcasts and YouTube videos. And of course, the connection is done through the internet rather than through sending somebody postage stamps in return for a copy of their fanzine. But in these early stories, although the stories don't amount to much, Ray is engaging with other science fiction fans. He's building his network. He's already got a good collection of writer friends, such as Hank Kuttner, and various other people who are involved in the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society. And with each piece of writing that Ray published, he must have grown in confidence. And the more writing he did, the better he got. Now, next time that I do one of these chronological episodes, we'll take a look at the year 1939, when Ray's output goes up. We'll get stories such as How to Run a Successful Ghost Agency, and Mummy Dust, and Gold, and Pendulum, the first version. So the year 1939 takes Ray one step closer to being a professional writer. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Bradbury 100. If you enjoy Bradbury 100, please give me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review will help others to find the podcast. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to or follow the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast places. And don't forget to look for my Bradbury 101 series on YouTube, and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these, and an endless supply of information about Ray Bradbury and his works, head to my website, bradburymedia.co.uk.